2: This is the Tom Hartman Program. And welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. On the line with us is uh, Professor Richard Wolf, the economist, co-founder of Democracy at Work, author of numerous books, his most recent Understanding Socialism, democracyatwork.info, and uh, with 2 fscom are his websites. You can tweet him at ProfWolf with 2 fs And Professor Wolf, welcome back. I share with you this Bloomberg article about China's banking watchdog warning the Fed basically about what's up, and you know, the Fed has created $7 trillion out of thin air. There was a piece yesterday or the day before in the Financial Times wondering out loud what will happen to America if our dollar dominance around the world, if the dollar ceases to be the world's reserve currency, you know, how much inflation could that cause in this country? What's going on here? What is up with all this?
3: Well, I think you see a number of signs. First, I'm a little amused, as I know the readers around the world are, to have the chinese weighing in uh... now that they are a monster economy really contending with the united states for dominance they're going to comment on our central bank's behavior their comment is shared by others it's not that the comment is out of order it's just another sign that the united states footprint in the world economy is shrinking and that of china is uh, growing and there are hundreds of those signs but this is another one the concern of the chinese central bank and of the chinese finance ministry is shared by the rest of the world the united states has both the benefits and they're enormous and some of the burdens of being the world's currency Right now, the Federal Reserve is so desperate about the conditions of the American capitalist system that as you noted they have been pumping up the money supply by the trillions they already did that once before in the 2008 crash so this is a huge extra on top of an already swollen money supply and the great anxiety when you print money like this is that it will start to chase goods and services and then you get that inflation and Nobody knows quite how bad that might be or how soon it'll come or what its damages might be. You can already see it because a good bit of that money has all flown into the stock market where you have an inflation where you have seen spectacular doubling or tripling of the prices of all kinds of stocks from their low in march to where they are right now so you can see the money flowing in you can see how the bidding up of prices is going and so you can only sit and shiver and wonder to yourself what happens if and when that money, facing the possibility of a burst stock market bubble, might start looking for other things to be spending on. And then the price of everything else will go crazy. And the difficulties we have now in our economy will come be compounded.
2: So, what does the average American do about this? I subscribe to this newsletter, The Aiden Forecast. We've had uh, Pamela and Marianne Aiden, who published it on this show before you know it's basically for retail investors and a couple of weeks ago they came out with a newsletter saying that you know it looks like the Trump administration is trying to drive down the value of the dollar and the Chinese are you know involved in all this basically and so move your money out of dollars and buy euros right now you know the stock market's a crazy place to put your money the the bond market has fallen apart but you can buy uh, you know ETFs for euros or Australian dollars or Canadian dollars Because, uh, you know, Trump has set the dollar up for a fall, basically. Is that, I mean, you know, how do we get ready for something like that? You know, I remember the really, really high inflation rates in the 1970s. I bought a house once. I think it was a 13% mortgage on this house that Louise and I bought. Are we going back to that? You know, how do people respond to this? How, how How do we deal with it? Well,
3: I wish I could give you the kind of magic answer here, do this, that i know is in your mind and the minds of millions of other people but i cannot at least i can't do it honestly there is no riskless asset there never was even if you hold cash if we have an inflation the cash becomes less and less valuable as the prices of everything go up so even something as simple as that but i'm afraid this applies to the rest of the world's currencies also they are in a different situation uh, they're not pumping up the money supply the way the united states is but they're also in a different situation the only safety that i can ever see in the instability of our capitalist system is the old rule of not putting all your eggs in one basket make very sure that if you have any assets that you have the ability to move around make sure some of them are in the united states make sure some of them are out Make sure some of them are denominated in dollars. Make sure some of them are denominated in euros or Japanese yen or whatever else you you have a belief in. Don't put it all in stocks. Don't put it all in bonds. Don't put it all in big companies. Don't put it all in medium or small. In other words, try to spread it out so that you do not get wiped out if one or another of these sectors is undone. And let me assure you that between the pandemic and the crash of capitalism around the world and the consolidation of europe which is not being reported but should be because they're getting their act together and they are a bigger economy taken together than the u s is and the disputes between the united states and china you have a set of possible variables that disrupt everything that make any commitment to one asset or one category of assets the most unwise way to invest your money.
2: Yeah. I wrote an op-ed a couple of weeks ago pointing out that Jerome Powell is not an economist. He's a bankster. In fact, he was a managing director at the Carlisle Group. You know, right. And that, you know, he's printed $7 trillion in in money and used a a good chunk of it to buy uh, corporate bonds and and stocks, uh, you know, thus supporting the stock market. And speculating about, you know, what happens if Trump gets his favorite meal, which is revenge, the day after Joe Biden is declared the winner of the election, whatever day that may be. Trump orders Powell to stop supporting the stock market. And uh, you know, what might happen if Powell was to say, okay, that's it. We're not only going to stop buying stocks and bonds, we're going to sell the 6 or $7 trillion worth that we're holding right now, or whatever the amount is, a couple trillion dollars worth we're holding right now.
3: Well, let me tell you two things. One, I doubt Mr. Powell would do such a thing, given who he is and how he has spent his life. He has more loyalty to the likes of Carlisle Group than to Mr. Trump, uh, and that was always true, and that's true now, too. But I would actually point you in another direction. This is a stock market bubble. This is a pricing of stocks based on a flood of money that means that everyone who's involved these are the knowledgeable speculators they know too that this kind of a bubble always ends badly and usually in the same way the bubble bursts. that's why we even have the language available to say what i just said therefore the trick is not just to come in and buy and then resell at a higher price equally important is to get out before that burst happens. So what you're getting, and you're already seeing it now, more and more anxious investors, yes, they're in there, yes, they're continuing to buy and resell at a higher price, but it wouldn't take much of a startling new event to make an awful lot of people in the market decide, this is the moment to play it safe, sell what you have, if you're wrong, you can go back in next week, and of course, as always with the instability of capitalism, that very idea of what may happen if people act on it will bring about their worst fear.
2: Yeah, there you go. Professor Richard Wolf, his most recent book, Understanding Socialism, Democracy, at Work.info, and Rdwolf.com. Thank you, Dr. Wolf. Thanks so much for dropping by.
3: My pleasure. Thank you, Tom.
2: Great talking with you. I it's always I always learn something from Richard Wolf. He's just brilliant. You can help America return to democracy by telling friends and family how to listen to this and other great progressive programs. Tag, you're it. This is a tough and bizarre time for all of us. And I, you know, I've been upfront that there are times when I'm just you know, on the edge of being overwhelmed by it all, by, you know, the complete trashing of American norms and standards, the violence that has been perpetrated against people of color, in particular African-Americans in the United States. Although, you know, looking at what's going on in our southern border and the whole immigration system, Trump torturing children for political gain, I reach a point at times where my sense of things is that there are factions who genuinely do not believe in america they genuinely do not believe in the ideas or ideals that this country has professed for two hundred and forty years has been working towards step by step altogether far too slowly but they want to literally reverse that stuff they would like to go back to an america pre-civil war and Earlier in the day, and you can find this over on Twitter, there was a whole long, fascinating Twitter thread about how just in the last 48 hours, this avalanche of people have come into Twitter, many of them brand new accounts, many of them accounts that were activated back in 2016 and then weren't used for three and a half years saying i'm a lifelong democrat and then saying and therefore you know and joe biden doesn't represent me and therefore i have no intention of voting this year and that is a major meme that is being put out it's being put out by troll factories overseas and it's being put out by republicans here in the united states it's being paid for to be put out and it's like everybody's on edge And now we've got this white guy with a long gun, apparently an AR-15, killing two people in Kenosha, Wisconsin, in response to protesters out there, and arguably rioters, destruction of property, but killing people? And there's this, I was going to say caravan, It's the wrong word, it's a march. There's a Black Lives Matter group that's marching from Milwaukee to Washington, D.C. It's about 60 people. And they're going to meet Al Sharpton for the March on Washington on the anniversary of Martin Luther King's. I have a dream speech. One of their guys was shot at a couple of days ago. This is in Bedford County. And then last night, people were shooting at their hotel. I mean, this is is where we're at right now. I pointed this out in my book, The Hidden History of Guns and the Second Amendment, that the reason the Second Amendment was written the way it was and passed the way it was when it was was specifically to maintain legal protection, federal legal protection for the slave patrols in Virginia, South Carolina, and Georgia. Those were the states that basically had threatened to pull out of the Union, not to sign the Constitution in 1789, if there wasn't some protection for their slave patrols. And Patrick Henry, you know, talks about this at length in the Virginia Ratifying Convention, I quoted in my book. And in most cases, those slave patrols were actually volunteer vigilante groups. They were not official police in most cases. They were not deputized, although they had some legal authority, but they were a well, local militia, as it were. But mostly they were you know, local white farmers and, and other white people whose economic survival depended on these larger plantations. In fact, most of the people in the slave patrols were not even slave owners, but they were the white people who were benefiting from slavery in the South, and they had an economic connection to the giant plantations. And in other words, the slave patrols were civilian vigilante groups whose main job was to suppress any possibility of a black uprising. Well, that same Second Amendment did its work in Kenosha, Wisconsin, when a white vigilante shot and killed two people just after police had given him a bottle of water and thanked him for showing up. I mean, seriously, think about that for a second. And then after he shot these people, if the videos are to be believed and the story is accurate and we're still you know, waiting on confirmation of all those things, but it appears that after he shot them with his gun on it, you know, across his body, he walked toward the police with his hands up to surrender and they just went right by him. You know, hey, you know, just a white guy with a gun. No danger here. Must be one of us. Just move along. I mean, this, is, this idea that carrying weapons has been wrapped in our flag. And now our flag is being used as a symbol of fascism and the destruction of our values and of, as a banner with regard to the murder of black people in this country and the ongoing oppression of black people in this country. Somehow suggesting that armed white guys are patriotic right? We're going to show our patriotism by going out in the streets with guns and threatening people. When did that become patriotic? The guys with guns in 1776 were in a defensive position. The British army had occupied North America. The British warships were in our ports. This is just mind-boggling. We have an armed population during times of political strife. That is not something that helps further life or liberty in the United States. And guns of war should not be on our streets, frankly, at any time. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Actually, I want to talk about last night's Republican convention, too. We'll do that right after the break. Stick around. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is by Alan J. Lichtman, and it's titled Repeal the Second Amendment, The Case for a Safer America. This is from the introduction, uh, titled A Book That Must Be Written. On April 28, 1996, 28-year-old Martin Bryant stopped at an inn near his home of Newtown in Tasmania, Australia, and shot to death its two owners. He then drove to the former penal colony and tourist attraction of to Port Arthur, where he lunched at a cafe. After eating, Brian pulled from his sports bag a semi-automatic rifle with a 30-round magazine that he had legally purchased through a newspaper ad. With no provocation, he began firing at patrons in the cafe and its gift shop. Before the police stopped his shooting spree, Brian had murdered 35 and wounded 18 others. His motive remains unknown. There were people everywhere, bodies, said witness Lynn Beavis. I thought at the time, being a nurse, I've seen dead people, I've seen blood, I've seen things like this, but what I saw in there, nobody but perhaps a soldier would know what that was like. The leadership of a shocked nation responded to the Port Arthur Massacre, not with thoughts and prayers, but with decisive action. The country's conservative-led government rebuffed their gun lobby and its American ally, the NRA, to adopt comprehensive national gun controls. In a 2015 broadside labeled Australia There Will Be Blood, The NRA charged that those regulations, which Australia significantly tightened as of 2002, have, quote, robbed Australians of their right to self-defense and empowered criminals. If the NRA was right, America, with its lax control over firearms for alleged self-defense, should be one of the world's safest countries, certainly far safer than Australia, where criminals presumably evade gun controls to prey on defenseless, law-abiding citizens. Yet in the latest reporting year, gun homicides claimed 14,542 American lives, compared to 27 in Australia. And all homicides took 19,510 American lives, compared to 222 in Australia. Since the NRA issued its warning, firearm homicides have declined in Australia, while soaring by 3,534 in the U.S., An American is now over 30 times more likely per capita than an Australian to be murdered by a gun, and seven times more likely to be murdered by any means. If we had rates comparable today to Australia's, some 14,000 American lives would would have been saved from firearm homicides in 2017 alone. By the gun lobby's twisted logic, Japan, which has one of the world's strictest gun control laws, should be drenched in innocent blood yet out of a population of 127 million shooters in japan murdered only three persons and injured only five in firearm assaults throughout 2017. australia and japan are not outliers as compared to residents of our closest peer democracies in the g7 group of nations plus australia an american in 2017 was over 20 times more likely to die from a gun homicide The gun lobby would have you forget that gun deaths are not limited to murders. In 2017, 23,854 Americans died from gun suicides, 64% more than were killed in firearm homicides. As compared to the peer nations, the 2017 per capita rate of firearm suicides in the United States was seven times higher, while the rate of suicides by other means was 40% lower. These other democracies all have strict firearm regulations none has a constitutional right to keep or bear arms a distinction the united states shares worldwide only with guatemala whose gun murder rate is the third highest of some 195 nations worldwide why has america lagged behind the democratic world in protecting its citizens from needless death and injury the culprit is not spending by the nra on campaigns and lobbying which other pressure groups exceeded the real problem is that which gun control advocates fear to name the Second Amendment. Led by the NRA, the gun lobby exploits a historically defective, perverse reinvention of this amendment to inspire their grassroots supporters, sell guns, and provide constitutional cover for their opposition to making us safer by regulating firearms. The competing movement for gun control has floundered in response to the gun lobby's triumphant marketing of the Second Amendment. Gun control advocates have righteous zeal and noble motives, but lack a winning strategy. Instead of forthrightly refuting the lobby's bogus claims, the gun control movement has instead fallen into the trap of lamely insisting, we support the Second Amendment, but we also support responsible gun control. With such a self-defeating strategy, the movement can never win. It plays on the gun lobby's home turf and fails to rally the American majority that favors stricter firearms regulations. It provokes only scorn from a gun lobby that dismisses yes-but assurances as rank hypocrisy. And it ignores the clear history and the true meaning of the Second Amendment itself. The movement for gun control must strike hard with a new strategy. Repeal of the Second Amendment is not only right, but realistic. It would break open the political logjam and open a path for the comprehensive national gun control and safety measures that have eluded the American people for so long none of these measures would confiscate firearms or stop americans from using guns for hunting sport shooting antique collecting or legitimate self-defense a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of the free state the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed these form the second amendment book repeal the second amendment by alan j Lickman. You're listening to Tom Hartman. There is a federal law. It has criminal penalties. It's called the Hatch Act. that says you may not use federal property for political purposes. When we were doing our show in Washington, D.C., our radio show here, I used, we used to be in a building uh, next door to the Heritage Foundation, in fact, that rented out rooms, offices, office space. Actually, I think it was, a, it was probably an apartment building years ago, but And there was a single elevator. And going up in that elevator, I was constantly running across members of the United States Senate because that building is close to our building. And, you know, quite a few of them Democrats. I think they were more in that building and probably Republicans have another building. Why were they coming to our building? So that they could sit and make phone calls to donors because you can't do that from your office in the Senate or your office in the House of Representatives because that's a violation of the Hatch Act. You go to prison for it. The Trump administration, the Trump campaign last night broke the Hatch Act over and over and over again as if to say to us, screw y'all, right? I mean, that's basically what they were saying, that they don't care about the law. They can break the law with impunity, but it is illegal. You've got commentators on TV going, well, maybe it's a violation. of No, it's against the law. Well, some say it's against the law. Yes, it's against the law. They broke the law. Anyway, I just the show last night was was distressing to me. I forced myself to watch this stuff because I have to be able to knowledgeably speak about it here on the radio and television with you all. But it was very troubling. More troubling, though, was a tweet from Frank Luntz. Frank Luntz, the Republican pollster, tweeted: Pennsylvania in 2016 on yesterday, Hillary was up 9.2 percent in the polls over Trump. Right now, Pennsylvania, Biden is up 5.7 points over Donald Trump. Hillary Clinton was almost four points ahead of Joe Biden at this point four years ago. In Michigan, Hillary was ahead nine points over Trump in Michigan in 2016. Right now, it's 6.7 points that Joe Biden is ahead. In Wisconsin, Hillary was ahead half points. Biden ahead 6.5 points. Now, I did bring this up with Congressman Pocan you know, Wisconsin's in this mix. It was 11 points ahead. Now it's only six points ahead. Are you worried? And he said, no, I'm not worried because in the 2018 election, a couple hundred thousand people on the Democratic side showed up and voted who hadn't voted in 2016 because they just weren't all that excited by Hillary Clinton. And those people are, if not excited by Joe Biden, frankly, frightened by the prospect of losing our democracy altogether and sliding into the fascist hole that we're three quarters of the way into right now and I share that. So this may not be the disastrous news that it sounds like, but it it tells us how important it is that that we get out and vote. That you make sure that your voter registration is active, that you ask for an absentee ballot if you're gonna vote by mail, or that you find out where you physically vote if you're gonna vote in person and when early voting starts so that you can get in there when there's not a big crowd and you can do it and get it done with. All that stuff is really important. So I was inclined, you know, to kind of give Melania a pass. You know, she didn't ask for this job. And then uh, Jeff Tiedrich, who's, you know, kind of a uh, thorn in Donald Trump's side on Twitter. Jeff Tiedrich constantly tweeting some really, really uh, on-the-edge stuff. But Jeff really lit out. He said, I really don't care what the green card trophy wife who married the president for his money recoils at his touch never smiles in his presence, refuses to share a bedroom, and fully expected she'd be a widow by now has to say, do you? And I was like, yeah, you know, I get that. Meanwhile, TV evangelist Paul Begley, there's an asteroid that's going to zip by the world the day before the election, November 2nd. It's a small asteroid. It's not going to do any damage to us or the world or anything like that. It's only six and a half feet across. But he's proclaiming this as proof that the apocalypse is upon us the day before the election. That said, he's a right wing crank. So maybe the apocalypse is upon the right wing cranks. Let's hope so. I'll pick up your calls after the break. Stick around. You're listening to the Tom Hartman program. Just a heads up that I'm doing book events. You know, normally when I show up in a town, you know, to do a book signing, the way that you hear what I have to say is by showing up at the bookstore. Well, you know, these are different times. And, you know, it used to be if you didn't live in that town, you couldn't even get to the bookstore. We are doing virtual events, live virtual events in Seattle with Seattle Town Hall, Again, a live virtual event. That'll be Friday, September 4th. So, just a heads up on that. Ralph Nader wrote of this new book, it's called The Hidden History of Monopolies How Big Business Destroyed the American Dream. He said, This is the most important dynamic book on the cancers of monopoly by giant corporations written in our generation. Dennis in Crystal River, Florida. Hey, Dennis, what's on your mind?
1: Yeah, thanks for taking my call, Tom. Listen, I've, had, I've called my congressman every day, twice a day for two weeks now, and I asked him about the stimulus bill for multi-employment pension funds because we're mm-hmm. going to be out of our pension fund very shortly, and nobody is talking about it. We're talking about 400,000 members that are going to lose their pension.
2: I was wondering right. maybe you could this say something about it. Is this the Mid-States fund, fund you're talking about? It's a Central States Central Fund. States? Central States yes. Fund, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. I think it's something that the Democrats are very, very concerned about and trying to do something about, but the Republicans don't give a damn. I mean, this is a pension fund for union workers, and Republicans yeah. don't even believe workers should have the right to unionize, much less know. have you know, well-funded union pensions. So you've got the entire Republican Party and the entire Trump administration fighting this tooth and nail, trying to prevent you know, any government money from helping or bailing out this pension fund. But keep at it, Dennis. I mean, that's all we can do is we just have to keep at it and keep demanding some sort of a response. Thanks a lot for the call, Dennis. John in Gary, Indiana. Hey, John, what's up? Hey,
1: Tom. What is wrong with Rand Paul um, about people having to suffer? Right. In order, Very... you know, if they don't suffer, if they don't suffer, then they won't do anything. What, what is
2: wrong with him? there are two things crazy yeah i agree with you john there's two things going on number one The conservative worldview, and this goes back 200 years, this goes back to Edmund Burke. The conservative worldview uh, actually goes back 400 years to Thomas Hobbes in 1634. The conservative worldview is grounded in the idea that people are essentially evil and therefore you have to have, to quote Hobbes, the iron fist of church or state to restrain their evil impulses. So when people don't behave the way you want, you must make them suffer. That's Rand Paul's worldview. It's probably how he was raised. And then the second thing is, he has bought into this libertarian theology that was promoted when the libertarian party was invented in the 1950s and 60s by a real estate lobby. That government is a bad thing. Government regulating real estate, government regulating toxic industries—that's a terrible thing. And therefore, we have to destroy government. And you know, and, and that's Rand Paul in a nutshell. Those two, those two ideologies combined in one person create this real sick worldview. listening view. to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. And it's real unfortunate, but John, you nailed it. And I think there's probably a lot of Americans who are scratching their heads going, what's with these these Republicans? Because Rand Paul's not alone in believing this. So for our Tom Hartman Insider video that's available over at TomHartman.com, It's pretty mind-boggling, actually. Candidate Trump, back in 2016, said, I'm not going to cut Social Security like every other Republican, and I'm not going to cut Medicare or Medicaid. Every other Republican is going to cut, but I won't. That's what he said. Well, what did his budget actually propose? His budget actually proposed, this is last year's budget. Congress didn't pass it, thank God, but this is what his budget proposed. $1.9 trillion dollars in cuts to Medicare and Medicaid, and $26 billion in cuts to Social Security. And now he is block-granting Medicaid to the states, which is already cutting back on Medicaid programs in the red states. You can check it all out over at TomHartman.com. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. We'll get back to putting our politics back together. In just a minute, first, I want to talk about putting our economy back together, this is uh, a fairly large issue. If you go back to the statistics that the uh, Economic Policy Institute pulled together from uh, current employment statistics, uh, the uh, analysis of the US Census Bureau, et cetera, et cetera. In 2018, the United States lost 1,005 factories. Over 1,000 businesses that did manufacturing went out of business, causing 216,000 people to lose their jobs. In 2017, we lost 782 factories. 50,000 people losing their jobs. In 2016, I'm working backwards here. 2016, we had 999 factories closed, 33,000 people lost their jobs. In 2015, it was 2,129 factories closed. I mean, this is, this is just continuing. You can take these numbers all the way back to the 80s, you know, when we began this giant neoliberal experiment of moving all of our manufacturing to low-wage, low-regulation countries. And Trump campaigned on this. This has been a Democratic point for years and years and years. Outside of the Clinton administration, Democrats have always generally been somewhat protectionistic, You know, saying, let's keep manufacturing here in the United States. There's a whole bunch of really good reasons for that. But Trump has been trying to do this by executive order and by fiat and stuff, and it has not worked, obviously. On the line with us is Robert Scott, Dr. Robert Scott, Rob Scott, Ph.D., Director of Trade and Manufacturing Policy Research at the Economic Policy Institute. EPI.org is their website. His uh, Twitter handle is Rob Scott underscore EPI or Economic Policy. And Rob, welcome to the program. First of all, why has manufacturing gone offshore? Let's just start there.
5: Well, it's a combination of things. I think the most important, frankly, is that we let it happen. It's a policy of what I call malign neglect. And there are several pieces to this. The way we built our economy and the strength the strength of that economy was through research. We let research lag. We used to spend upwards of two and a half, three percent of GDP on research. Much of it through the DoD, but you know that helped the commercial sector as well. Well, that, much of that money is gone. We're now we've lost uh, two or three hundred billion dollars a year in research. But the worst thing that we did was we allowed other countries, such as China and Japan and Korea, to take advantage of us in several ways. The first and most important is they engaged in what's called currency manipulation. They bought up dollars uh, made the dollar more valuable, uh, drove down the value of their currency, and then made everything that they exported to us cheaper uh, and made our exports more expensive. So, uh, effectively, they subsidized their exports to the rest of the world. And really, that's the key. They subsidized their exports to, to us. We let it happen. Uh, in doing so, they exported unemployment to us. Uh, and we lost, as I've shown in the paper, which we're talking about, over 5 million manufacturing jobs and 91,000 factories since 1998 alone.
2: Wow, amazing numbers. So how do we reverse this? What do we do to change this?
5: Well, we have to decide that we care. We have to decide that that having a strong manufacturing sector matters. It matters because workers in manufacturing earn better pay. They have better benefits. It helps redistribute income in our society by creating more Downwards. good jobs, especially for uh, workers without college degrees. So that's why. Uh, What do we do? First of all, we have to attack that overvalued dollar. The dollar still is overvalued by, I'd say, 25 or 30 percent. We need to uh, to bring the value down several ways to do that. We can talk more about that in a moment. But we have to bring the dollar down to make our exports more competitive. That's the single most important thing we can do. On top of that, our tax policy encourages offshoring. Companies pay half or less of the tax rate if they produce a good offshore and bring it home and sell it here. Rather than producing goods in the United States, companies ought to be encouraged Do the tax law to produce more in the United States. So that's a simple thing we can do. This was made worse in Trump's tax act. That's where that 50% discount comes from. And after that, we've seen a huge surge in outsourcing in industries like pharmaceuticals. So get the dollar down, invest more in workers, in R&D. Those are the kinds of things that can rebuild our manufacturing economy.
2: Yeah, you said that there are ways to reduce the value of the dollar. What are those?
5: Well, the dollar was driven up, as I said, when foreign countries and foreign central banks bought up hundreds of billions of dollars a year in U.S. securities, principally in treasury bills that built up demand for the dollar. This and is why China's sitting on a
2: trillion dollars of the treasuries?
5: It's more like two or three trillion right now. And Japan has Whoa. two trillion. It's about 20 countries, It's not just China. So, we got to reduce demand for the dollar. One of the best ways to do that, there are several, but the simplest thing we can do is to put a tax on foreign purchases of U.S. dollars. There's a proposal that's been introduced by two senators, a bipartisan bill, the, the Senate, introduced by uh, Senator Tammy Baldwin and uh, Wisconsin and Josh Hawley of Missouri, and that would impose a tax on all new foreign purchases of U.S. assets. And think about that for a minute. It's a tax on investors just those who happen to live abroad. (laughs) So it generates tax revenues that we can spend at home (laughs) on foreign investors, and that will drive down the the demand for U.S. securities and demand for the U.S. dollar.
2: I have read, Rob, that one-seventh of all U.S. business assets are foreign-owned. If that's true or any number like that, how would this affect that?
5: Well, when companies invest in the United States to produce goods, and those are long-term decisions. So we're talking about a very small tax, maybe a quarter or one-half of 1% one time. It's a front-end tax. And that's not going to invest a business decision by a company like, uh, say, BMW or, or, or Mercedes to build a factory here if, it, if they decide it's more competitive to and build things in the United States but it will deter people who are buying up, let's say, f- foreign exchange or treasury bills to hold for a few weeks or a few months. And so at the margin, we can reduce those high-frequency transactions and drive down the dollar without making us less attractive for foreign investors.
2: Right. I noticed that you didn't mention tariffs or other you know, barriers to trade, like Alexander Hamilton proposed in 1791. And and we basically had until the the 90s, as I recall. Do you think that that's too much of a blunt instrument these days?
5: I do, and and one reason is that By imposing tariffs. What happens is, in a modern economy with flexible exchange rates, the currency just moves in the opposite direction. So, uh, Mm. since Trump has imposed his tariffs on China uh, beginning in March of uh, 2018, the dollar has gained about 13% in value. (laughs) So, essentially, that just makes imports cheaper, offsetting the effect of the tariff. And that's what the flexible exchange rate does. That's why the exchange rate is the most fundamental price in, in the international economy, and that's why we have yeah, to attack it. I get that. It.
2: What about specific Buy America rules for the federal government?
5: Absolutely necessary. We can create hundreds of thousands of those jobs
2: that way. And that law was the Buy America Act was passed back in the 70s, wasn't it? I mean, it's still in the books. It's just the administration since Reagan have been giving waivers, haven't they?
5: They have, and in fact, it goes back to the Berry Amendment in 1930s, I think.
2: 1930s, amazing. Rob Scott, uh, Dr. Rob Scott of the Economic Policy Institute, the Director of Trade and Manufacturing Policy Research. Rob, thank you so much for dropping by.
5: Thanks for having me. This
2: My is the pleasure. Tom Hartman Program. It's epi.org. They do some absolutely stunningly great work over there. Check it out, Will. The hidden history of the war on voting tells how the GOP has been stealing elections for decades. And will again this year unless we stop them. We're putting together a series of American history books. It started with the hidden history of guns in the Second Amendment. Then we had the hidden history of the Supreme Court, the betrayal of America. Then the hidden history of the Republican War on voting. The hidden history of monopolies, how big business destroyed the American dream. And then next spring, it's going to be the hidden history of oligarchy and tyranny. Joan in Rochester, Minnesota. Hey, Joan, thanks for watching Free Speech TV. What's on your mind today?
0: I watch you all the time. I listened to you on Air America two years ago. I had seen it back in the early Mm -hmm. 20s. There was that TV guy that I used to watch showed he had snuck into the Bohemian Grove to buy on the Bilgenberg Group, and they showed a ritual where they had an altar and they had a person dressed in a hood was performing some ritual at this altar, and all this was a very secret meeting, and it had a lot of the Harvard and all these Ritzy graduates. And I don't know that anybody watched this show very much, but it came through on on the college channel that I watched in the town I lived in, and it was very amazing that something like that could be sponsored and practiced by... People that were educated and so forth and held secret but it was called Bohemian Grove and it was the Bilderberg group and I just yeah, wanted, the, I didn't know if you just, were aware just, of that or not
2: I'm very aware of both the Bilderberger group is there's a hotel in Europe that I believe it's the hotel is named Bilderberger or is owned by and that's where one society was meeting uh, the Bohemian Grove is a private for-profit operation. Well, maybe it's non-profit, I don't know. But it's a private operation in California that is separate from the Bilderbergers, but, you know, tries to bill itself as kind of an American secret society. Reagan was, uh, you know, a big guest there. A friend yeah. of mine's father is actually a member. Had his foot peed on once by Henry Kissinger. Um, you know, the the rich and powerful hang out there. And they do these bizarre kind of uh, pseudo what would you call it? Pseudo pagan rituals? Well, uh, they kind that's of delight sort of exactly, in them?
0: Yeah, that's exactly what it was.
2: Yeah, I mean, this is <laughs> lifestyles of the rich and famous. I mean, these, these are politically powerful people who hang out there. And That's I don't right. know if they've canceled it this year because of COVID. I'm guessing they probably have. But, you know, every summer they get together or whenever it is, you know, every year they get together at, at the Bohemian Grove. And and there have yes. been some good documentaries on it. There's, there was a really long, in-depth piece in Rolling Stone magazine about the Bohemian Grove, maybe 10 or 12 years ago, 15 years ago. Yeah, this was like a
0: that. long time ago, yes, that I saw that. Yeah. And, yeah. and
2: yeah. one it's, other
0: thing I just want to say, Steve Bannon... Gave a speech in 2013 saying he was going to run this country into the ground, and it looks like he's off to a good start. Just wanted to let you know Yeah. Okay, yeah, no, um, he, he you're, came you're, right, right out and your,
2: said that... the, the I sorry, love John. your
0: program. Watch it all the time.
2: Okay, thank you very much, Joan. To Joan's comment about Steve Bannon, he did come out and say that the goal of the Trump administration was to, quote, deconstruct the administrative state. Now, deconstruct is a fancy... Polysyllabic word for take apart or destroy, and the administrative state is government geek speak for our federal government. So I mean, they came right out and said it when they took power. Our job is to destroy the American government. The question is, on whose behalf are they doing it? You know, is it just billionaires who want deregulation and tax cuts? Is it foreign oligarchs? Is it you know foreign? Po- is it you know, Putin? I mean, who is it?
4: As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills.
1: The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is.
4: Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact.
2: It's the Tom Harbin University Book Club. Today we're reading from Donut Economics, brand new book by Kate Raworth, Seven Ways to Think Like a 21st Century Economist. And on page 21 in the uh, Who Wants to Be an Economist chapter, Seven Ways to Think Like a 21st Century Economist, here they are. Whether you consider yourself an economic veteran or novice, now is the time to uncover the economic graffiti that lingers in all of our minds. If you don't like what you find, scrub it out. Or better still, paint it over with new images that far better serve our needs and times. The rest of this book proposes seven ways to think like a 21st Century Economist, revealing for each of those seven ways the spurious image that has occupied our minds, how it has come to be so powerful, and the damaging influence it has had. But the time for mere critique has passed, which is why the focus here is on creating new images that capture the essential principles to guide us now. The diagrams in this book aim to summarize that leap from old to new economic thinking. Taking together, they set out, quite literally, a new big picture for the 21st century economist. So here's a whirlwind tour of the ideas and images at the heart of donut economics. First, change the goal. For over 70 years, economics has been fixated on GDP or national output as its primary measure of progress. That fixation has been used to justify extreme inequalities of income and wealth, coupled with unprecedented destruction of the living world. For the 21st century, a far bigger goal is needed, meeting the human needs of every person, within the means of our life-giving planet. And that goal is encapsulated in the concept of the donut. The challenge now is to create economies, local to global, that help to bring all of humanity into the donut's safe and just space. Instead of pursuing ever-increasing GDP, it's time to discover how to thrive in balance. Second, see the big picture. Mainstream economics depicts the whole economy with just one extremely limited image, the circular flow diagram. Its limitations have furthermore been used to reinforce a neoliberal narrative about the efficiency of the market, the incompetence of the state, the domesticity of the household, and the tragedy of the commons. It is time to draw the economy anew, embedding it within society and within nature and powered by the sun. This new depiction invites new narratives about the power of the market, the partnership of the state, the core role of the household, and the creativity of the commons. Third, nurture human nature. At the heart of 20th century economics stands the portrait of rational economic man. He has told us that we are self-interested, isolated, calculating, fixed in taste, and dominant over nature, and his portrait has shaped who we have become. But human nature is far richer than this. As early sketches of our new self-portrait reveal, We are social, interdependent, approximating, fluid in values, and dependent upon the living world. What's more, it is indeed possible to nurture human nature in ways that give us a far greater chance of getting into the donut's safe and just space. Fourth, get savvy with systems. The ironic crisscross of the market supply and demand curves is the first diagram that every economic student encounters but it is rooted in misplaced 19th-century metaphors of mechanical equilibrium. A far smarter starting point for understanding the economy's dynamism is systems thinking, summed up by a simple pair of feedback loops. Putting such dynamics at the heart of economics opens up many new insights, from the boom and bust of financial markets to the self-reinforcing nature of economic inequality and the tipping points of climate change. It's time to stop searching for the economy's elusive control levers and start rewarding it as an ever-evolving, complex system. Fifth, designed to distribute. In the 20th century, one simple curve, the Kuznets curve, whispered a powerful message on inequality. It has to get worse before it can get better, and growth will eventually make it up, or even it up. But inequality, it turns out, is not an economic necessity. It is a design failure. 21st century economists will recognize that there are many ways to design economies to be far more distributive of the value that they generate, an idea best represented as a network of flows. It means that going beyond redistributing income to exploring ways to redistributing wealth, particularly the wealth that lies in controlling land, enterprise, technology, knowledge, and the power to create money. Sixth, create to regenerate. Economic theory has long portrayed a clean environment as a luxury good, affordable only for the well-off. This view was reinforced by the environmental Kuznets curve, which once again whispered that pollution has to get worse before it can get better and growth will eventually clean it up. But there is no such law. Ecological degradation is simply the result of degenerative industrial design. This century needs economic thinking that unleashes regenerative design in order to create a circular, not linear, economy and to restore humans as full participants to Earth's cyclical processes of life. Seventh, be agnostic about growth. One diagram in economic theory is so dangerous that it's actually never drawn, the long-term path of GDP growth. Mainstream economics views endless economic growth as a must, but nothing in nature grows forever, and the attempt to buck that trend is raising tough questions in high-income but low-growth countries. The book, Donut Economics. Lynn in St. Paul, Minnesota, uh, watching on Free Speech TV. Hey, Lynn, what's up?
4: Hi. I just wanted to say that watching Kamala in this campaign season, uh, when she was running for primary, she didn't even make it to the first vote. And she was called corporate. Her record was totally maligned for her attorney general work and her DA work. And it seemed to me like she didn't get any real endorsement until Joe Biden chose her, which is reminiscent of what happened to Hillary. And uh, her record wasn't even being discussed because of Benghazi and the emails. It just seems that we're still in the same place where women are not trusted.
2: Yeah, I I acknowledge that, Lynn, but this is a problem that is pervasive across our political Spectrum. The media does not like to talk about issues. Female politician, male politician doesn't matter. They don't like to talk about issues because they consider that boring. They think it causes people to tune away. They only want to do sports. Basically, they want to do horse race. Who's up? Who's down? Who just slashed somebody? You know, if it le- if it bleeds, it leads. That that's the motto of the media. But broadly speaking, I think you're absolutely right. And now look at what's happened. Now it's there's all these news stories about oh Kamala. I had an affair with Willie. Brown. It wasn't an affair. She was single. He was he was estranged from his wife. And so what? You know. So they dated. And the birther stuff. You know. It's it's again, that's not issues either. It's these are personal attacks on her as a woman and her as a as a person of color. Yeah. I just think the whole thing is outrageous, Lynn.
4: Yes, and thank you for saying that. And next time anybody says anything about $600 a month making people lazy, we can go to the tax breaks for the wealthy. And they've been very lazy, the people who receive, receive that money, because all they do is give it to their stock people and themselves. And yeah. they're, not, uh, yeah. they're not really doing any work.
2: Yeah. Thank you. I'm, I'm at, thank you, Lynn. I'm absolutely with you. I mean, if. if If what Donald Trump said on TV and what Mitch McConnell said a couple days ago and what numerous Republicans, what Steve Mnuchin said on the Sunday shows, that $600 a week makes people lazy, makes them unwilling to work. If that's true, then what the hell are we doing giving millions of dollars in tax breaks and subsidies to millionaires and billionaires? Aren't we really harming? These poor, gentle flowers, aren't we risking making them lazy? Aren't we undermining the productivity of the job creator class? Lynn has it so right. I mean, you know, if these guys really believe what they're saying, then they would want to reverse those tax cuts and those subsidies tomorrow morning. But of course, they don't believe what they're saying. It's just BS. On this week's Science Revolution, Ethan Manuel with Sierra Club's Land Protection Program is here on Trump Green Lighting Drilling in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. Will the oil companies show up? Adrian Shelley with Public Citizen is dropping by on the methane rule rollback and the Trump administration's continued assault on our climate. Lori Lotus with Climate Power 2020 is excited about Biden and Harris painting a bold climate action plan with clean energy jobs. Plus, in geeky science, there's a new study out. Do plant based meats improve your heart? Tune into the science revolution wherever fine podcasts are available. Katie in Clovis, New Mexico. Hey, Katie, what's up?
1: Hi, Tom. The coronavirus has obstructed my ability to find work. I was an unemployed student who was leaving school, and I was just starting to look for a job. When the coronavirus hit and everything closed down, I'm talking about the fact that the people who get $600 a week, etc., or $400, it doesn't really matter, are all people on unemployment. The people who were not on unemployment, who were unemployed, just got $1,200. I am basically squatting homeless at a relative's house. He's paying for all my food. I had to take another degree, basically, to get student aid so I can get through this, and I'm going to have $100,000 to pay back when I get that done. So anyway, part of the national communication about this should be that all these people have... Jobs, or they had jobs, and they're getting unemployment. But there are many people out there who are not being counted, who did not
2: have jobs. What do you say right. about that? Or, right, or who are you know eligible to enter the workforce because they just graduated from college, or they just left their parents' All home? Right. You know, they're they're just transitioning into adulthood, and they're falling through the cracks. You're absolutely right, Katie. And the and the, on the other end of that, the other thing that hugely concerns me is that when the Republicans cut long-term unemployment from 99 weeks down to less than a year, now you've got people who are going to be rolling off unemployment. And uh, that's going to be very, very difficult for them as well. Katie, we just need to keep talking to our politicians about this and essentially lobbying them. And and that's why, you know, I I keep giving out the number for Congress, 202-224-3121. Katie, I wish you the very best. You know, keep us up to date on how you're doing. Norman in Portland, Oregon. Hey, Norman, you got the last minute. What's up?
1: Hi, uh, Tom. Thanks for calling me here. Um, I just wanted to let you know, in addition to the woman that called, that not just former students, but many of us who are long-term unemployed are also excluded from PUA long-term uh, for health unemployment insurance. Right. And uh, this is right. kind of, you know, supposed to be a safety net. It's, it's not funded by payroll tax, which provides that justification for other unemployment programs. And I'm concerned there's going to be a rash. The October surprise is going to be a rash of evictions that might really affect the vote for... It's November. already started,
2: Norman. It's already started. There was a piece in, in, I believe it was Financial Times, might have been the New York Times, about how the eviction started on August 1st, because that was in most states. Here in Oregon, we've the governor extended it until uh, October, I think the end of October. But it's in most actually, states. Here in Oregon. September. Oh, here in Oregon. Okay, thank you. So that would be October 1st, right? Uh, or that would be when it gets bad. But, but in most states, that's what's going on. Norman, thank you for the call. We really need to deal with this stuff, and this is a real crisis. Thanks so much for being with us today. We'll be back at the same time, same place. In the meantime, don't forget democracy is not a spectator sport. If we're going to hang on to it, we've got to participate in it. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. And please, this is a real difficult time for all of us. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.